0: Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to another exciting FS Club webinar. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Michael Minelli. Uh, I'm the executive chairman of Zen, and it's my delight to be hosting a webinar uh, with uh, a dear friend, uh, Donna Jones. And Donna's going to be talking today about taking advantage using COVID-19 to move business and people up a gear. Um, I think Donna falls very clearly into the school that uh, within every cloud there's a silver lining or... Uh, don't waste a good crisis, or if you've got your back to the wall, this is a time to do something about it. And these are all extremely good thoughts. And as we move into, depending on where you're located, uh, the third, fourth, or even fifth month of this pandemic, it's an extremely good time to think about now that you've handled it, what can you do with it? And we're going to be here to explore this with Donna. Now, before we get cracking, uh, just a A word not from me, but a word for our sponsors. I feel very much like a 1950s U.S. radio program, Uh, a word for our sponsors. And that's important, actually, because one of the great things about this wonderful list of sponsors is how widely they allow us to range freely across many, many topics to do with technology, finance, social issues, and everything in between. So it's a great, uh, great time to be here. Um, The agenda today is fairly straightforward. I will get out of your way as quickly as possible, and we'll get over to Donna. Um, All of the materials are online, and we'll be posting more after the event. So if you want to pick things up or find references or connections uh, to Donna, just uh, simply ask. Further, uh, today we are going to have sufficient time for questions, approximately 15, maybe a few more minutes. And I would encourage you to use the chat facility that is here to ask questions on GoToWebinar. Do send questions through, and I will feel them to Donna. Donna's also got a couple of polls today. Uh, that'll test a few of you, but you'll find it. So just be alert. Uh, there will be questions to ask so you get a bit of feedback from the audience as well. And finally, uh, well, Donna's uh, biography is online as well, and therefore I don't propose to read it. One of the great things I love is that uh, she is the author of Decision Making for Dummies, which I, I'd like to claim I haven't read, but then I have read, so I guess that makes me a dummy. It's a, it's a, one of those conundrums you can't get out of. Anyway, uh, Donna, I'm really delighted that you've uh, come coming in from Vancouver of all places to share your thoughts with us today. So, uh, over to you in your morning, uh, in your morning garb. Donna, <laughs> the, floor, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you, Michael. So nice to be here, and delightful to be on the program with you. Thank you very much. What I'd like to do with you today is go over uh, both the impact of COVID and the impact of decision making and, and look at that. Look at how crisis can be used, as Michael said earlier, just what we're going to do with that. And then we need to talk about the leaders challenge because there is a significant leaders challenge. And finally, as a takeaway, I want to give you a principle, a way of making decisions that anchor decisions throughout the company, but you can also probably use it for yourself. Although I just realized I've never really tried it, but, but I do know it works for companies. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. The real challenge that, that we have in front of us is both character defining, it's career defining, and it is company defining in that coming out of COVID, the question is, do we go back and restore our business as usual, which is coming up in terms that I'm hearing are like, are we going to claw back to the past? And you know, go back to those stifling workplaces that we've lived in before and don't want to return to? Uh, or do we reinvent and use, you know, what what are the tools we have to reinvent? And I, I'm just putting out here uh, peak performance, which is a bit of a science and an art as well. In in terms of what we've witnessed in companies, we started off by seeing an awful lot of expedience bias show up, meaning let's cut costs. That's the old default. Uh, and so I've got two stories for you. One of them is a is a story of a company that immediately, in fact, there were five of them profiled, I believe it was on the Washington Post. Uh, five of them profiled where they immediately cut, they laid off all their people, and then they distributed fund they distributed uh, big chunks of money back to shareholders and their executive team. That's an example of the expedience bias. And obviously it has consequences in terms of how you return, how you recover what that looks like, who you're going to attract. And there's a whole lot of things that go with that. The second one is a company that actually, I think I saw this story on LinkedIn, but it was a company who, who had the CEO was sort of looking at doing that the cutting cost default pattern, and, and sort of realized, I don't have to do that, I can think about this differently. And so what he did was he went back to his people. And he said, you know, how can we save money? How can we do this and get through this together, and they worked out a way to, to make it. So very different approaches, and, they, you know, one speaks to reinvention and the other one or, or speaks to, you know, pivoting, really being adaptable, and the other one speaks to doing the same old thing uh, without even uh, – with a lot of muscle memory, You know, you just always remember that's how we've done it. In this mix of things, we also have companies that never used a crisis to – didn't need a crisis to really ask the question, what do we want to be when we grow up? They design themselves accordingly. So we've got self-managed companies, and I'm only going to mention two here. One of them is Visi, which is a mortgage advisory company out of, out of the Netherlands. They very much operate on a human-centered workplace set of principles. I've got an interview with that CEO on my podcast. And the other one is Matlock Systems, which is in the UK. It's a aeronautics manufacturing company, um, and they've done some incredible work. Their basic redesign was all data-driven. And they moved from a traditional company, which was too expensive from a command and control point of view, into something they call Fractal. And uh, so I, I, the, the results on that are really interesting to watch over time. I first met them in 2015 and five years later, their productivity has gone up to 600, gone up 600 percent. And the number of people they've got employed has gone from 30 down to I'm not sure, but I know it's less than 12. So it's it, you know these are very interesting models, but again they didn't require um, uh, they didn't require a crisis to to get started. It, it, you know I suppose Matt Black would say it did require a crisis. We were running out of money and bleeding cash, and we we couldn't keep doing it that way. But it's not this kind of crisis. Not a system wide crisis. Next. So one of the neat things about COVID that's really helpful is that it is, it, it's is—it's producing the same systemic effects and impacts that climate change does. It, it's its all the same undercurrents. We've seen a lot of interesting undercurrents show up with respect to air and water quality across around the world as soon as human activity shut down. So the old excuse that says that humans don't have an impact on, on what's going on in the world has been sharply... Observed to be out the opposite. So we're, we're seeing some very interesting things surface. And as such, it's pretty much a, a crash course in systems. It gives you a chance to see what are the interactions that work more indirectly than directly. And, and that uh, gives us an opportunity to ramp up uh, who we are and how we run, how we do things to really match that, that level uh, of complexity and actual change. Because this stuff is, you know, these kinds of changes have been emerging, kind of simmering slowly, but coronavirus is like smacking your face. You you can't kind of look out the side and pretend it's not really there. It's it's in your face, which is uh, quite beautiful. The shift in this kind of thinking obviously is going to hit both what you focus on and how you make decisions. One of them is that we've used resources as we thought of resources as being human, wildlife, nature. We've, everything is there to be exploitive, extracted, used, and then discarded. And as a result, we've got, and I've been putting this in my decision-making programs for a while now, but we've got $70 billion worth of rare earth minerals in landfills around the world. That's a lot of rare earth minerals. And the ones that are left are in Africa. And so there's very little left for us to draw on. And those are all the resources, in case you're wondering, that produce your cell phone. So all those rare earth minerals are what, it, what, what runs our tech. That's a, what happens when you when you have some linear decision making, which is I'm going to use this and then I'm going to throw what's left over away. Uh, that's the that's the flip into what how can we save money doing what we're doing, but doing it very differently. And so that's the real opportunity and beginning to shift from a very linear approach to how the world works to one that understands the complexities of these interactions. Learning before leading really involves um, changing a couple of things. One of them is changing the kinds of questions you're asking. So, you know, today you might be asking yourself, what do I want to do next? Do I want to go back to work? I've been on remote. Do I, have, do I want to return? If so, what would the terms and conditions of that be? So it's the size of the question. It's the kind of question that you're asking. And it really opens up possibilities. So it's different questions. The second skill set that goes with learning before leading is to observe the patterns that have you've seen through the experience. And some of those are very uh, ingrained patterns, but some of them will be new, newly emerging out of this whole experience we're having with COVID. And of course, that gives you the chance to say, all right, what's next? Not what's next in six months or, you know, but long, longer term, medium to long term. But what's next in the immediate term, 30, 60, 90 days? What, what are the iterations that we can do that would allow us to see how to move forward? And finally, the proposal that I'm giving you here in this in this conversation is to really set the conditions uh, for peak performance to take place because uh, that's where we get both optimal leaps, both personally, but also organizationally. So, so while Michael's setting up the poll, I will uh, give you some insight into what angle I want you to use when you're answering the question. And and that's really, what patterns have you observed around you in companies that you've been witnessing? So you could answer this personally, but the goal here would be if you look at the companies that you're either in or on furlough from or watching around you, what what do you have you observed? And I, I know there's one that says all of the above, but, uh, If you could just sort of pull out the dominant one, I would appreciate it.
0: Doing well, uh, Donna. Just to just give a little bit more time.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh,
0: We've just had over 50% vote. I'll close it in about another 10 seconds, people. 60%. Great. Okay, folks. uh, Sadly, just going to close the poll, and it's just calculating. We have 56% saying confusion, coping, uncertainty. 44% saying uh, paralysis of decision-making. So those are the two dominant ones by far. Uh, 16% pivots with great agility. 9% peace and reflection. And 6% panic. So, uh, you know, fascinating. And here come the results now online.
1: Oh, beautiful. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you all very much for jumping in and, and weighing in on that one. Um, it, it's fascinating to see this because the, um, the shock of being out of a routine, it sort of snatches away all the certainty about the future. And the beauty of that is that whether it's in personal life or organizational life, it throws everything up in the air and you get to look at things differently. You get to that, that I'm really sorry the peace and reflection one isn't at 70 to 80 percent, because that's the place where we need to be in order to handle these complex issues. But it's also the place where we make those pivots happen. So those two are what we're aiming for in the longer run and the approach that we're talking about today. But it's also the place that uh, where the intersection of both your personal skill set, your personal way of seeing things, your outlook, your initiative, your sense of control, where that dovetails with what's going on organizationally in the company that you're working in or, or running as it were. Yeah, thanks very much, Michael. So when we look at how do we work with these environments and these conditions, uh, one of the core aspects of it from a neuroscience point of view is is learning. And it, I mean, that sounds so simple and so obvious, and it is. But at the same time, because we've got all these default emotional things running, it can be really distracting from what the opportunity is in the moment. And this, this is what, what the big shift is. So It is really looking at what can I learn as things emerge and anybody that's been through adversity will have probably come across this and can reflect back on it and say, this is what I learned from recovering from depression, from my marital meltdown, from my financial, whatever it is, but it is really learning about this. And and there is a particular process that uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman from Stanford talks about, and that is focusing the attention on learning even if it requires strain and confusion so if you answered confusion it's perfect because that's the place where you apply the learning to if you answered that you know the whole panicking thing that again that's the place where we go in and 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 decision paralysis is even to notice that the paralysis has taken place but the trick on this always is that you you have to step into that confusion you step into that strain and then you need time to rest and get that rewiring done so that's where, you you know, your balance is had by going outside, by doing, you know, if it's yoga or whatever it is that that allows you to kind of just rest the brain and, and let it, you know, sew in those new awarenesses, those new insights. That's what that's how self-directed neuroplasticity works. The ability of the brain to make the adjustments works the same in organizations, too. It's it's exactly the same thing. It's just a different context. So the leader's challenge then is um, well said by Thomas Friedman. I came across this in a program I heard the other day and I thought, wow, I love that quote, and it's fresh. So it is that that place where as leaders you can either contract, which is what fear does, it just sort of brings you 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 know, brings you in and, and you shrink. Uh, Pluralysis is one of those things, but it's not the only one. It, pretending nothing's going on is another one. Blaming conspiracy theorists is the third. <laughs> There's lots of places where your attention could go. But the opportunity then is to either, as he says, grow or swell. So you either grow out of those weaknesses, the ones that that don't feel quite up to par to speed in the moment and get to the level of the challenge or all those weaknesses get much worse. And I'm pretty sure we're bearing witness to that at the political level in the world today. So just just to say that that's, uh, you know, we can see that happening. So this is the chance that we have to do things differently. Good thing, too. Um, there is a body of work coming out of Lectica.org, which is Dr. Theo D- Dawson. It's based on Dr. Kurt Fisher's work on developmental dynamic skills theory, I'm sorry, out of Harvard. And they have done some, she's developed this tool that really tests where, where do, you know, man, where does management lie with respect to dealing with complex issues? And so they looked at complexity through two lenses. Through thinking complexity, capacity to work with the wicked problems, the complex issues, and also um, just role complexity. So based on my role, can I meet the the, uh, the challenge? And that's the gap that we are facing. Um, that's the opportunity as well. So so it, it, you know, obviously operationally, there's going to be a lot more certainty involved and less complexity. However, there's still a need to shift perspective, pivot see you know adjust what i call zoom in zoom out shift perspective so you can see things differently so there's the opportunity there's a set of skills that go with it they are both simple sounding and yet uh, require a certain level of mastery so
0: donna would you just mind explaining lectical for a second the, what are, what, is,
1: is what yeah it's it's the um it's the measurement tool that they've developed And to be honest, I can't remember the specific definition. I'll have to look that up. Uh, But the website is there. And you know what? Dr. Theo Dawson, it's T-H-E-O Dawson, D-A-W-S-O-N. She's got a ton of great stuff on Medium. So anyone who wants to do a deeper dive into what she's done, that's the place to go. Yeah. Sorry, I can't answer this directly, Michael. I'm a, I've got this brain that doesn't remember specifics; it remembers dynamics. No,
0: you're giving people <laughs> where to go, and that's all I need. Thank you
1: very much. <laughs> yeah, it's just the way my brain works. So, yeah. So on the on the inner side, you know, in terms of what's going on in you and and what's available to you, it is to observe those default habits you have in your own decision making patterns. There is a muscle memory that goes with that, and so anytime you go to shift how you make your decisions, shift what you're seeing, it, it takes a lot of practice to kind of re-embed new patterns in. So you're rewired, you're doing some rewiring. And, you know, Andrew Huberman's work is, is um, sort of provides the neuroscience backdrop for that. Interestingly enough, fear is, it, the, according to Stephen Kotler, fear and curiosity sit on the same vibrational level. Uh, Stephen's done some incredible work in the area of flow states, and which I'll get into shortly. But but the opposite side then is curiosity. So in in terms of, of fear, everybody started like, oh, that's fear. It's yeah, but it's also fuel. And I did an interview with um, some military people who use fear as fuel all the time. So this is again a chance for us to be very aware of when am I being you know people want to talk about fear. It's almost like having a phobia of a phobia. But but uh, fear is really an opportunity to be more curious. Again, get those questions asked look at them differently, keep keep putting out more diversity in the picture, the better. I sort of liken it to having uh, the more pixels you have in the picture, the, the the bigger the picture becomes. So this is where diversity is really important to being able to work with complexity. Whereas in the past, we've gotten away with keeping the view quite narrow and not really paying a lot of attention to that. The inner challenge is also to switch from controlling and limiting performance. Uh, one Back one, sorry. My there we go. fast <laughs> for me. A switching from controlling performance, which is really limiting it to setting the conditions for peak performance and that requires a couple of ingredients which I'll get into. And the final one is the really important one from my point of view because I've seen a lot of stuff around mental health, mental illness, um, mental health mostly, but stuff around anxiety, depression, and so on. And this is where you have to work with your emotions as a compass. And particularly it's your heart energy and people burn out because they've put out more at the heart level than they've received in. So it is being very aware of is what I'm doing depleting me or is it enriching me? And that balance, that dynamic is pivotal for you to steer your way through what's coming at you at the time. Now we can go. (laughs) Thank you. So moving forward then, we've got some uh, awareness around where am I placing my focus? because that impacts the brain response. So if I'm focusing on what's wrong with this picture, problem solving, negative, you know, all that, the brain's neural real estate loves that. I mean, there's something like 5,000 more neural uh, pathways devoted to fear and, you know, protection than there is to the other side of it. So uh, this is is where we actually get to uh, adjust our focus and be extremely aware of it and use it to work for us instead of against us moving forward then also in terms of running the experiments that you can do in your company moving forward it's not pass or fail that's a very duality perspective it's also what led us to doing pilots like uh, cars that were done differently and then when they passed the test they were canned anyway because it it, they didn't fit they didn't conform they weren't part of the mainstream uh, belief system inside of a company so it's really about learning using experiments to learn as opposed to pass or fail Distributed decision-making is a way of building in resiliency and adaptability at all levels, and then, of course, removing barriers to collaboration. Um, And I put that little line in there about due to insecure authority. Authority and leadership now need to be completely divorced. So this is where that parting of the ways and leaders come from within. They do not come from a place of authority. So you have to not use that authority place as a crutch. And finally, what we're going to be looking at is applying the principles and practices that really allow you to thrive, aim high. It includes autonomy, um, self-managed companies, as I mentioned earlier, or biomimicry management companies uh, as well. So now, I believe we have, where are we, Michael? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So now I'm going to give you the peak performance triggers. Thank you. Um, what the, this speaks to is raising that bar high enough that your your skill set says, "Whoa, I'm not sure I can do that." Perfect. That's that's the place. So, so you want to raise it high enough, but not far enough that you're going to snap. No need to snap. So the math in the, in this in the challenge that Kotler uh, has worked out is four percent. You just want to give yourself a four percent, whatever that is to you, but a four percent challenge. And and the triggers uh, and I've kind of mixed the triggers up here. There is a distinct set for personal and group, but the triggers include novelty. So that means play. You know, let's how can we play our way into a reemerging. Um, it includes complexity, which we have, so that's that's easy. Risk taking. It's there's nothing predictable or certain about it. That gives a, a it's a nice flow state. Passion and purpose are aligned. In other words, it's big enough that I care about it enough. There's some freedom to play with this and to to really see what we can do. Uh, It's unpredictable. You can see all these elements here are the same ones they use in video games for intrinsic motivation are also the same ones we can use for redesigning what comes next. So it's a shared inspiring goal. And I call it the blending of egos because uh, we have a tendency in the old way to have one ego win. This is more like a shared version of being right. And then there is a dark side of flow state, which has to do with the biochemical, uh, the neurochemical mix, actually, that comes when you're in that zone, that absolute zone. And I'm pretty sure most people on this program have heard that or been in that space where may, you know, maybe have been work, may have been with a team, may have been in your personal life, but either way, you've probably hit that space. So you have to have rest and recovery time. And quite frankly, if a lot of sales managers would have figured this out, we'd have fewer burnouts in that uh, in that group. So um, this is our next poll question. And that is, given what you see is possible, what is the probability that companies will use post-COVID to learn and reinvent? From your point of view, obviously, what do you feel is likely to come next? Will the invitation be accepted? or will it be denied?
0: Okay, Donna, we're just getting uh, some of those numbers in. Poll's been running just for 20 seconds, and a very alert and active audience. And folks, I'll take this opportunity to say also,
1: uh, do ask your questions as well. Fantastic. I'm.
0: Great, super, I'm just closing the poll now and I will now share the results with you. As you can see here, uh, the vast majority <laughs> are, are are between sort of 30 and 80 percent. So uh, Donna, over to you.
1: Thank you, Michael. Very interesting. Uh, I, it'll be interesting also to see how that shifts as we go forward. Obviously, the invitation is there. The opportunity is there. The question is who will use it. And so it does take courage. It takes a huge level of commitment. Um, that's why companies, organizations like the Basque area of Spain that are helping companies transform. That's why they put a lot of skin in the game for executives who are having to say, you know, yes, we were committed to, to transformation. The whole company votes on it to see if they're committed, but if they, you know, and, and the executive can be voted out if if in fact that's what the, the group determines. So a lot of commitment, a lot of courage, uh, and probably the best opportunity for us to, uh, to really thrive using these conditions, which is really what's required. So now what I'm gonna do is just kind of shift gears. Uh, next slide, please. And take a look at some of the guiding principles that, um, you can use, you know, I mean, I sort of think of this is a way of, of, uh, one back. Uh, way of one back, a way of one back, a way of 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 uh, anchoring, you know, decision making throughout a company. So it's, it's really just saying, all right, we've got most companies, by the way, run their decisions off of what they believe to be true. And they're subterranean. It, it's not, you know, most people, they're not conscious of it. It's just running the show. I when I was writing decision making for dummies, somebody reached out to me and said, can you meet me at some cafe in some city in the United States? So I drove down and we had coffee. And he said, I've been in a thousand companies. And he said, within the first 10, 50 minutes, I know exactly what they're going to do next because their decisions run in circles. And that's a very much a subconscious belief system operating the decision making in the organization so the shift then is away from that I mean you can use value-based decisions as well I've been finding there's a lot of confusion between those and it's not none of this is exclusive one thing is right the other is wrong no it's going to be a matter of being very aware of what the effect is so going forward then uh, what we're what I think we're looking for is something that sort of anchors the decision at all levels of the organization. And that question is, you know, who do we, what do we stand for no matter what? So Novo Nordisk, it's an ethical principle. It's not one that we stand for profit at the cost of all else. No, that doesn't cut it. Um, in the same way, quarterly, you know, targets don't really inspire people to perform their highest and best. Uh, That's the same sort of approach here. So ethical principles, anchor decisions made where you really want that alignment vertically um, and responsibly all the way. So Novo Nordisk, which is a pharmaceutical company, it's a global pharmaceutical company based in in Denmark, uh, their, their anchoring principle is systemic health. If you look at whatever you ask, does it strengthen diversity and biodiversity? I was on a hike yesterday and we were talking about the education system and their desire at some of these universities are choosing online platforms to decide, you know, for their students, they're having to adapt their whole teaching methodology to online. And one of them had decided that they'd get rid of the visual part of it. So, you know, people learn three ways, audio, visual, and kinesthetically. That would be an anchoring principle. That particular university decided to get rid of two of those and just stick with one. So if you have those things clear in your mind, then you can make those what I call screen decisions. It's yes, no, does it need it or not? And then that's that's a really good way of keeping alignment. Thanks, Michael. Next one. Now, there is a set of companies um, that run their their management off of ecosystemic principles. Now, these are the same things that run complex systems. It's basically how the planet has been managing uh, the the. the ecosystem, you know, everything since 4.5 billion years, roughly. So those principles poured over into how companies manage themselves. A colleague of mine started up a fund. It's called the Living Asset Management Performance Index. In 1996, he chose companies that were typically in the headlines out of sectors. You know, they're not companies, but but sectors that were typically in the headlines. And he formed something called the Global Lamp Index. And they, most of those, consciously or unconsciously, or better or worse, uh, you know, are aligned with those principles. So you can see the orange line on the top is their performance over time. It's what is it, 1994 to 2018? Yeah, it's a distance. So, and he's also pulled seven companies out of that and done a book on it called "Companies That Mimic Life," and that those are companies that really understood what they were doing. So. Next up, thank you. So this is the, you know, to pull us together and move on to listening to, you know, from you, this is the the executive and or personal challenge. It's really to advance uh, the emotional, social, and contextual intelligence. I mean, people move context and don't realize it changes. Biologically, it changes how you make decisions. So being extremely aware of that, uh, using those, creating flow state conditions, getting those those goals high enough and shared enough. And. And, and enough care that people want to collectively go for it and set that 4% iterative challenges for yourself, you know, let others do that same and shifting that from controlling to inspiring, distributing, sharing responsibility. I think the point there is that as long as we're controlling people, we're actually blocking their development. And that's what created that complexity gap that, um, that uh, Theo Dawson has documented quite beautifully. Finally, I think this is something I really, I mean, this is something I have do uh, but it is sensing to see the systems because a lot of these systems run without people being aware of them but if you go inside an organization you can sense just you know and you can see what's going on underneath the surface now you've got people inside companies that can do this but they're most often on stress-related illness or because they're so sensitive that they they can't function <laughs> you know in in a hyper uh, in a hyper in, environment so yeah, so that's our opportunity. the The opportunity I might add that flow states, by the way, also have a capacity to overcome uh, cognitive overwhelm, that confusion state, and and also produce something like five hundred percent more productivity. So really some super opportunities in front of us. Uh, this is the invitation to talk to me further. Michael, can we have some conversation with our group with the um, we most
0: team? certainly can. Uh, it's been a very active audience, uh, in addition, I noticed that, you brought many of your fellow Canadians on board. I, I see quite a few uh, Canadians out there online that I whose names I recognize. Um, a couple of things. Uh, Hugh Purser is very alert here. He just wanted to share with everybody. It looks like the link is uh, www.lecticalive.org. L E C T I C A L I V E.org. And he wanted to ask a question uh, Is it not the case that the poll questioner results will apply very differently? to different sectors, for example, biology or biotech doing well, and airlines not. They don't need to change in the same way. Quick comment on that, Donna?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, in fact, I just listened to a Barrett Value Center synopsis of how values had changed, you know, pre, during, and post-COVID, and there was a distinct difference in the, in the sectors. The IT sector pretty much experienced the opposite of what everybody else had experienced, but they had also achieved a certain level that the other uh, sectors had not as well. So, yes, of course, there's going to be a difference. Uh, no matter what, though, what we've got, what what it all speaks to is that it, it's adversity that calls out the deep creative talent we have in us. So when we have a sector like the travel industry going down, it really just says, what can we do differently that can reinvent this whole sector? So it's that we don't run from that challenge. That's that's the opportunity in front of us. And, and I think that's um, So the optimism toward it or not will obviously show up in a, in a poll question like that.
0: Got a specific question here from Douglas Andrews. What does Novo Nordisk mean by systemic health?
1: Uh, the way I've interpreted that and, and um, I have yet to get them on a podcast. I would love to do that. Um, the way I've interpreted it is it is systemic in the sense that they they are way, way ahead in terms of their eco environmental responsibility targets. Uh, in 2004 to 2009, they set to reduce their CO2 emissions by a percentage. They gave themselves 10 years. They went to their people, their employees, and said, Help, can you help us do it? We don't want to spend any more money, uh, but we want to achieve this, and they did it in five. Uh, just by finding savings in in their operations that, uh, you know, places where they were blowing money out. So uh, they are very comprehensive in their worldview about what makes them profitable. And the return on their investment over 20 years, which is, again, a slide I have been using for quite a while now. I think Pfizer over 20 years is 400 and something percent. And uh, Novo Nordisk is 1,637 percent. So they're not spending their money on lawsuits, you know, customers suing them. They're spending their money on, re, you know, basically they're thinking like an ecosystem. That's the distinction. And uh, and that's how it shows up in their decision making.
0: Uh, One of the things on on my mind is very early on you were talking about uh, the stress of the situation, basically bringing out leaders, or showing up uh, all too strongly, a uh, so called leader's weakness. Uh, a couple points here, really. In Germany, there's a fellow by the name of uh, Professor Christian Drosten, who has risen to huge prominence there as sort of the authoritative figure on COVID here in the UK, to some degree, also Professor uh, Christopher Whitty at Gresham College. So there have been p- people coming forward. Um, and and I, I guess that leads to two bits. How does a real leader know when to step aside and just say, "Hey, I'm not up to the task," or how does a, a leader learn to share leadership in in situations like that, where uh, some of these uh, scientific folks are helping, but will ultimately uh, move off stage at some point?
1: Well, I mean that's the question of the hour, I believe. But it it, it you know, to my way of thinking, it it is we have to work together. These issues are not small. They're not ones that one person's going to have the answer to. I don't have the answers to a lot of things, but I do know that if we put the right group of people in the room or we put people in the room who care, we will, we will find the answers. So I think the question around when do I step aside, for me, that answer comes from am I adding value or not? And sometimes when I'm not sure, I ask because it's easier for them to tell me than it is for me to come to conclusions about it. And, and that's just, you know, then, then I just live with whatever people tell me. So I think there's a personal aspect of it. And then there's just one that has to do with what I call conscious oversight. You know, if I look at this entire situation and the dynamics of it, uh, what can I, you know, is there something, a role I can play or is there something I need to go and do next that, you know, if I finish that role. and So that's how I answered that. But I think the real answer is gonna be centered in each individual you know, and how they see the world.
0: You emphasized, uh, you know, that that we start to shine in adversity. Uh, There are many, many uh, sayings about, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, diamonds are formed out of carbon under high pressure and temperature, whatever. Uh, The language is full of those. It's only when, you know, your backs to the wall, you really begin to see what's possible. But Zoe Layton uh, asks, you know, how do you see collaboration versus competition in this setting. And I, and I put it in that context because competition is one form of adversity.
1: It, it can be, you know, I, I, I looked at video game play, you know, I mean, the, the number of people that play video games worldwide is just ridiculously high. And when you look at how they play, they play using competitive competitive collaboration, if I can call it that. So it's not competition to win over someone else. It's a competitive spirit toward achieving a particular goal that you all share. So I think competition still has a role to play, but it, it's not from the same definition, if you will. It's not from the same uh, goal, which is, you know, I'm going to win. I'm going to beat you. Uh, it, 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 even, even in sports, we see that. I mean, the, the surfers, my daughter's a surfer, so I pay attention a little bit to what's going on over in that world. And you have two people that are competing with, the, you know, at the top level and a shark comes along they work together yeah. they're yeah they're not going to go okay good let him eat you so i can win no that's not how they work they work they recognize that this we are all in this together and i think that's the role of competition is really to work with uh you know a collaborative spirit to to get something tough really tough and bigger than us you know collectively done
0: yeah, there's the old joke that I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. I'm beginning to see <laughs> yeah. your, your poor daughter out there paddling ferociously. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure the shark would get me first. Anyway, uh, uh, Christopher Gleedle says, Thank you, Donna, for a really interesting presentation. To bridge fragmented specialisms and infill the knowledge gaps, to demystify complex systems and break them from the perpetual cycle of greed and fear. From your experience, how, how do you go about neutralizing the prisoner's dilemma?
1: Oh, well, I mean, all right. So this is this is (laughs) from my personal experience in the pursuit of the goal that we're talking about today. I became homeless for nine years and I became homeless for nine years because my goal didn't really fit what we were talking about at the time. And so all of those things that I've been talking about are things that I've had to wrestle with myself, Uh, the fears, the doubts the you know the and what came out of it more organically was was the skills that later on in both in neuroscience and other places i found i found oh that's how that's actually how it's supposed to work (laughs) well that was lucky so so it's very uh it was very experiential and going back to what you were asking earlier michael uh, the from a biological point of view i mean joseph chilton pierce in the biology of transcendence basically says that when we are faced with adversity, we are biologically wired to tap into a deep creative response. But when we don't tap into it, violence and aggression is the result. So it's being extremely mindful of those in the moment uh, responses. It's staying in the present. And I see a lot of people fritter their energy off on worrying about the future. We can can bring that future out together. We can co-create it together. But you've got to be in the moment to deal with what you're working with in in that space. So how will people do that? It just depends on why they feel they exist. What are their motivations? What's their inspiration? You know?
0: Good. I'm going to try and pack four questions into two minutes, so we'll have to be terse. (laughs) Uh, uh, Basically, uh, Susan Cuff says, how confident are you that leaders are open to being mentored and are credible mentoring resources available?
1: Uh, incredible mentoring source. That's an interesting question because it starts like, you know, putting a layer of judgment on where people are. I can't answer that. I mean, I do know that when I listen to coaches coming out of the world executive business coaching thing, that their, their focus is less on context and more on individual stuff. So there's a place for that, but we need to widen it to, to context. How confident am I? I tend to believe in the best in humanity. Uh, yes, we're going to lose some. No question. There's going to be some people that won't be up for the for the challenge. But I truly believe that there are some that will recognize that this is the best way to reduce their stress, to create you know a positive legacy. Um, not the one that we, you know, in the first story I told about quickly firing all their employees and getting rid of them. It's sort of the picture that came up was you know, the grandchild sitting on your knee and you sort of say, geez, you know, what did you do when the pandemic hit? And you said, well, you know, I fired all my employees and gave myself a bonus. That's not the story most people want to tell. I, I think they've got better ideas and I, I'm really hopeful that those are the ones we pursue.
0: Yeah. So what did you do to COVID-19 daddy? Yeah. Um, it's a very good point. Um, uh, Hugh Purser, I, I see him as a shark circling in the water. Sorry, Hugh. <laughs> he's, uh, he, he's come back for a second bite. Uh, Uh, What is your experience on the impact of gender in leadership in the context of today's discussion?
1: Well, you know, yeah, I don't know what my experience, but certainly what we're seeing show up in terms of female leadership uh, are you've seen that. I mean, the top the top uh, responses to COVID have come from female led. Uh, governance models and governance systems, and I had this conversation with with Jay Bragdon just the other day, who's the person behind the Lamp Index, and he's been finding the same sort of things in the in the economic models in the uh, Nordic countries. So, uh, it, it's you know, I think we need to get rid of all the isms uh, right across the board. The United States is massively dealing with racism, but they're not alone. It just so happens that country never matured past slavery, so. So there's that part of it, but there's also just an awful lot of places where we need to understand we're working here together and uh, not you know, really be conscious of, of where my biases are sneaking in and, and design for them. I know there's awareness that your bias doesn't help one bit. It's more about how we design for it. So I think we've got some opportunities to really des- design some more equitable um, and more intelligent decision making processes.
0: Uh, Peter Neville jo- uh, sorry Peter Neville Lewis, my apologies, would like to ask uh, quickly, if I may, should large organizations be required to have a published set of ethical principles and to report annually on how these are practically implemented?
1: I'm not a big fan of posters on the wall. I am a big fan of being clear about what your principles are and living by them. So if you were forced to publish them and put them up, I think it just encourages more of the the night the, the PR and less of the actual embedding those practices into the day-to-day. So my answer would probably be no, but okay. do 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 report to your shareholders or do report to the public on how you live it. Uh, not so much report, show it, be it. And there's nothing like a crisis that pulls out exactly what you live by.
0: Okay. And the last question I've got time for comes from uh, my colleague, it's Ian Harris. Uh, quite an interesting question, and one that you could probably spend a whole webinar on. Do you think that organizational learning or history would assist or impede the process of reinvention? Put another way, does deep experience tend to help organizations to change, or does it tend to embed traditional ways of doing things?
1: That's, it depends, gosh, that's, a, yeah, you're right, we could spend a whole webinar on that. Uh, I mean, as a professional facilitator who's moved across different sectors and different kinds of questions and different kinds of problems, I see a lot of mental models or a lot of belief systems that are can be pretty rigid come out of where we've been. Uh, I would prefer to see just like fresh start. <laughs> we've learned and you're going to draw on that experience whether you intend to or not. It's there, so it's not about denying the experience. It's just saying fresh start. What can we do differently now and today? So, so it's going to work for the answer is probably both. You know, it's going to be work for and against. the The opportunity is being clear on where it's working against. And so you can, you know, amplify those strengths instead of uh, drag the, the things that aren't going to help you in the future along with you. That's great. just an undertow. That's what I call the organizational undertow. Yeah. You go in, you start working with change and you can see the undertow happening and it's going to be exactly that area.
0: Wow. A lot of ground to covered. It's interesting for me, in fact, the, uh, the great Canadian uh, strategy theorist, Henry Mintzberg over at McGill was always anti-strategy. In fact, he wrote a book I think called *The Rise and Fall of Strategic Planning* some 20 years ago. Um, over here, uh, Professor Ian Angel, who spent many years at the London School of Economics, used to talk, I think, in a, in a way that not many people picked up about dispositioning. So, you know, all the marketing people are all about planning and positioning. He said, "No, it's about your disposition. It's your your degrees of freedom, your ability to take what's coming at you." Sort of. Uh, as a judo res- a judo wrestler versus a sort of a, a, an attacking uh, fencer or something, uh, interesting interesting bits. And I, what I picked up uh, today from you is that at a time like this, when we're most under stress, we should be uh, really, in fact, doing almost the exact opposite and opening ourselves up to new experiences and new ways of learning. Uh, and I found that that very good. In fact, funnily enough, I was on the phone today with a pro vice chancellor at a, at a very large and famous uh, UK university in the top five in the world. And he, he, uh, he was chatting about his role. And I said, you know, is your role kind of more ceremonial or is it more uh, sort of to do with admin or, you know, academic, what, you know, where do you fit? Cause these are terms that are thrown around. He said, and it was interesting to me. He said, I see my role more as enabling than constraining. And I thought it was interesting. His his view of the world was that there were people in senior positions who constrain and there senior positions who enable and that this ability to enable was core to him helping through uh, that university in particularly trying times. Well, Donna, thank you so much uh, for this. Let me just uh, quickly remind people that we also need to, before we come back and thank you a little bit better, uh, to thank our sponsors. As I said earlier, uh, the degrees of freedom that they permit us are most refreshing, and it's been a delight in COVID to be ranging around the world widely on a variety of topics and to be able to have experts uh, for dummies like me, uh, such as Donna, uh, come in and and talk to us about what she thinks we should be doing to take uh, this as an opportunity to move the world forward. So a sincere thanks to our sponsors. Um, Our thanks, of course, to our audience. Uh, We have a number of events coming up. Uh, Tomorrow we have another North American feature we've got at 3 o'clock, we will have uh, a very old friend of mine, Duncan Sands. Uh, Duncan, in fact, oddly used to be the Lord Mayor of Westminster uh, before he moved to America some 20 years ago, but he currently runs the P20, the Payments 20, a good combination of technology and finance, Uh, and he is talking about co I remember Ray Nurda trying to uh, create that portmanteau co-opetition, and I can see that Duncan is having a go at it as well so zoe thanks for pointing out uh, the, the 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 tension between those two to us all anyway as ever all these things are on the website so you don't need me to read it out to you uh but donna may i uh, join the audience in giving you what i'm afraid all we can give you uh which is a virtual thanks for a really superb uh, presentation that i hope has got everybody thinking about what can they do uh but by backing up and learning as opposed to trying to control things too much so thank you so much
1: uh, well thank you and thanks to everyone who came I really appreciate it. it's always a delight Michael thank you
0: no, it really is Donna and we'll be back in touch very soon so uh, everybody have a great evening uh, for those of you based in London have a great morning for those of you based in North yes. America and we look forward to seeing you on many webinars soon thank you all
1: thank you